Welcome back to the Lou Perez Podcast. My name is Lou Perez. If you want to support the show, please head over to theloupereslocals.com and join the Lou Perez community on Locals.com. And be sure to follow me on all social media at Perez. Here we go. And I'm very happy to be joined by Phil Magnus. And uh, Phil, can you uh, uh, tell us a little bit uh, about yourself for those who aren't, might not be familiar with you? Yeah, uh, thanks again for having me. Uh, I am an economic historian, and I'm based at the American Institute for Economic Research, uh, a very multifaceted uh, area of expertise that mostly focuses on economic history. Uh, look at the 19th century, slavery, um, elements of uh, the history of economic thought also as they interact with that. But I also extend into data analysis all the way up into the present day. Cool. And um, I guess, you know, maybe 100 years from now, people might be talking about how um, I live in New York City and I just uh, found out that Zoom, which is the uh, uh, the program that we're using to talk with one another, uh, there's going to be something like a 2.3% tax put on Zoom products that I have to pay uh, <laughs> just because I um, just because I'm attempting to communicate from my uh, my humble abode in in Brooklyn. So it's like, ooh, just put in the squeeze on me right there. Right, right. So, and and where where are you located? So uh, Great Barrington, Massachusetts. I, I guess so. You know, over the past uh, few months, you've sort of leapfrogged or or uh, gone from you know sort of academia research, history into, I guess, like online feuds. Um, and I'm, I'm not, I, look, we all have to take responsibility for our actions. I don't know how much of that is you uh, or how much of it is the, uh, um, you know, the people you happen to, uh, to disagree with. But um, maybe we could start by talking a little bit about the 1619 Project and how right, that sort right. of, how that came about. So. Yeah, and it's kind of been interesting because, uh, you know, with the lockdowns and everything that came in the wake of the coronavirus, uh, most of this discussion that would probably take place at academic conferences or take place in public events and venues has been thrust into exactly what we're doing now. It's Zoom meetings or uh, or Twitter feuds, Twitter debates. And uh, what we've seen over the past seven months is, is really the discussion over the 1619 Project which was awarded a Pulitzer Prize right at the outset of the pandemic, uh, has almost entirely taken place now online. So uh, I entered that uh, over a year ago when the original 1619 Project uh, issue came out of the New York Times as a critic, but uh, a measured critic. I'd, I'd even go far as to say I was more charitable to it than many of the opponents of the project, uh, but nonetheless pointed out historical errors in the main areas that uh, I worked on and, and have published on as a scholar, and that is the economics of slavery. Uh, so I, I wrote a, um, uh, several successive critiques of the main essay on the economics of slavery, which was written by Matthew Desmond, a sociologist, and then also some critiques, uh, but also partial defenses of claims made in the, uh, the, the lead essay to the project, and that was by Nicole Hannah-Jones, who was also the, the reporter uh, that basically took the charge of creating the 1619 project. You know, that played out for a couple months uh, of back and forth. It became clear by the end of last year that historians were from across the political spectrum were reading this thing, and they were clearly finding 
problems with uh, with both its factual analysis and its interpretation of the past. Uh, in particular, it had uh, advanced a kind of a fringe theory of the American Revolution that asserted uh, it was to protect and defend slavery against the British Empire, uh, which I think is, is utter nonsense, but based on a misreading and uh, an overstatement of evidence. Uh, then the second thing, which I really focused on, was its assertion that capitalism, uh, free market capitalism today, is some sort of a derivative of the slave plantation system of the 19th century, which is a really uh, uh, aggressively argued view on the on uh, the far left side of academia and the political spectrum. But it's something that economic historians have largely rejected. Uh, yes. And yet the 1619 Project's primarily based on that. So you know, on the you know the the first uh, charge that. Um, the Revolutionary War was fought to protect slavery. Um, when was when did England get rid of slavery? Well, when did they do away with it? It's not for another fifty years after the American Revolution. So uh, it, it's kind of a um, an absurdity that's at at odds with the timeline itself to assert that that England is uh, an emerging kind of abolitionist power in 1775, 1776. Because mm-hmm. uh, what's really going on in Great Britain is there is a uh, an internal debate over slavery. So there are abolitionists in England proper, just as there are abolitionists in the United States. But uh, it's not uh, abolitionist England versus uh, pro-slavery United States at all in that time. Yeah, and and I, I wonder if 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 so much of that has to do with I, I think it almost seems like the way that that slavery is taught in the United States. You, it seems like students can walk away thinking that slavery is almost an American invention. Right. That 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 it wasn't happening, uh, you know, forever, and also in in other parts, uh, in other parts of the world. Yeah, it's treated, uh, especially in the 1619 projects, treated as almost if it's America's original sin. And there was even some controversy over that. You know, they pick 1619; it's the date that the first slaves. A slave ship arrives off the coast of Jamestown, Virginia, the English colony, but slavery had already been imported into North America almost a century prior by the Spanish colonies. Uh, in Spain, you know, at this time controlled uh, what we now, uh, what's now the state of Florida. Uh, Spain had vast uh, presences on the, on both the North American continent and South American continent that were connected to uh, to slavery. So it's not like a uh, a uniquely American historical event, although. The emphasis does tend to, uh, to to play it up as if it's the United States' original sin, whereas everywhere else is kind of uh, either politely overlooked or shoved aside. I have ancestors uh, going back to to Spain, and it and it is it is interesting to see sort of the history of Spain sort of just kind of gets you know we just kind of leap over that and just go directly to right. to the English and and for, for the you know the the hundreds of years that that Spain was. Conquering, they were conquistadors. Um, exactly. That they were, you know, having their way uh, in the in the new world. Um, I, I, I tweeted something out a while. I said, um, for anyone who's uh, still speaking the language of the conquistadors, meaning right. Spanish, you are complicit. And uh, and a bunch of and a bunch of people took me seriously, and they're like. But, but but that's my that's my that's my language. That's what I grew up with. How you expect me to you expect me to speak you know a a, a native language that was you know taken away? Yeah. You wrote a really uh, a really interesting piece uh, in particular about the intersection of of capitalism and the abolitionist movement. Where right. uh, I, I forget uh, the website uh, that you published it on, but it, but you really took to task this idea that capitalism was keeping up. Uh, slavery, uh, yeah, as opposed yeah. to being 
completely opposed to it. Right, right. So it, the, it, it's a question of the intellectual history of capitalism, which is almost entirely missing from this narrative. Uh, you know, as a uh, historian of economic thought, this is something I've studied for decades and is, is very near and dear to me. But you can go all the way back to Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, which was published in 1776. It's generally considered like the first full true treatise of economics uh, that argues uh, from kind of this free market uh, capitalist perspective. Of course, they didn't use the name capitalism back then. Uh, that's a little bit of a later in invention. But uh, the way that Smith is is contextualized in that part of the history, he's kind of the founding figure of capitalism and that whole intellectual lineage of, of free market thought up into the present day, which is interesting because Adam Smith is also an abolitionist. And in The Wealth of Nations, he attacks slavery. In several of his other works and lectures, he attacks slavery. This is a major theme of his entire academic career is denouncing this horrendous institution that he sees taking place uh, across the seas in the colonies, but he sees it as both economically disruptive and uh, and morally destructive. So um, he is, is certainly not someone that would be associating his economic system with the slave class. So there, there's a, an immediate complication. That should be the red flag of, 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 of something like the 1619 Project, is claiming that capitalism and slavery are friends, and yet the, uh, the preeminent kind of found theorist of free market capitalist thought is an abolitionist. Something's not adding up right there. Adam Smith has many intellectual and political errors in the early 19th century that really take up the mantle of what we'd call free market capitalist thought. Uh, foremost among them in, in Great Britain is Richard Cobden, who um, it leads the, the, the charge in parliament to abolish protective tariffs and is, is just a, a major figure in elevating what we call the, the laissez-faire school of thought into prominence on economic matters. But it turns out Cobden himself is also an abolitionist and the campaigns against the Southern Confederacy during the American Civil War, he's over in Britain trying to discourage uh, people in Britain from supporting the Confederacy and saying, you know, the Union cause is the one that we should back. So uh, it, it just doesn't add up when you start looking at all these figures in what we'd call the capitalist tradition. It gets even more complicated because on the pro-slavery side, you have uh, uh, figures that are, are defending slavery from the Southern perspective. Uh, foremost among them is a guy by the name of George Fitzhugh. Uh, he's a very popular pamphleteer in the 1850s. Is seen as kind of like the, uh, the, the foil, the William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass, the abolitionists in the North. This is their pro-slavery adversary in the South. So, so George Fitzhugh, this, this radical pro-slavery theorist, denounces capitalism. He uh, writes a pamphlet in, uh, in the early 1850s where he says that we should take the, uh, uh, the theories of Adam Smith of his successors and cast them into the fire. And his reason was he thought that free market capitalism by promoting free labor would undermine the slave system. He said that uh, uh, free market ideology, laissez-faire theory is at war with slavery. So not only do you have abolitionists aligning on the free market side, you have slave owners and slave theorists aligning on the anti-capitalist side in the 19th century. This is the complete opposite of the story that these, uh, these writers in the 1619 Project are claiming. How do they contend with that? What, what, what's their response? So the fascinating thing from the 1619 Project, the people that are making this case about slavery and capitalism being tainted and partners together – have adopted a position of non-engagement with uh, critics, with anyone that, that that raises these problems with their thesis. And I'd say they're fundamental problems that debunk the thesis. 
but uh, they refused to engage the evidence. Uh, one of the leading figures is a historian at Cornell by the name of Ed Baptist. And four or five years ago, he was coming under fire on very similar types of criticism for his book that made this argument. And he just decided uh, that he was no longer going to engage his critics, uh, uh, accused a bunch of them of being racist for uh, uh, opposing this, uh, uh, this argument that he was advancing. And we've seen that play through all the way into the, uh, uh, the spillover in the 1619 Project. So uh, this essay by Matthew Desmond, the one that I critique, uh, almost every major historian and economist critic of the 1619 Project has pointed out this essay as one of the major flaws of it. And yet the New York Times won't even acknowledge that there's pushback, that there's criticism. Is, um, is this just abnormal? Uh, what is it like? What was it like, you know, say, you know, 10 years ago, um, you know, working in this field and, and having these kinds of debates? Because, because I wonder, it, seem, it seems almost like the responses that, that you describe, and in particular, the, the responses to you directly, they have a tinge of, you know, sort of the social media culture that we're under, where it's sort of like, uh, oh, Phil has a you know a stupid haircut, therefore I don't have to listen to what he has to say. And I'm not saying you have a stupid haircut. I think you have a good haircut. <laughs> Just using it as an example, but sort of like these ad hominem attacks, where um, where it's almost like, well, I uh, you know I have a blue check mark on uh, on Twitter, therefore I don't have to engage you, and I don't have to engage right. your your right. your arguments. And uh, as somebody as a as a civilian, <laughs> as somebody who you know. Uh, looks to historians like yourself and looks to the New York Times for my information. Uh, it's uh, it's a pretty it's pretty disconcerting. Yeah, yeah, and, and it very much is a blue check mark phenomenon. Really early in the sixteen nineteen project debate, uh, I had an encounter on Twitter with a historian that was very much in favor of the project. Uh, and I, you know, I pointed out some of the factual flaws to her, and she responded by using like grade school your mama insults. In wow. response to me, and there's actually a little bit of a news story, and, and then some other people jumped on the thread that were actual scholars, and she starts insulting them, just flinging profanities, flinging insults at people that uh, that dared to question her political interpretation. And something I pointed out at the time was, you know, say 10 years ago, 15 years ago, before this culture really existed online, suppose, uh, like, in, envision a top historian at Harvard or Princeton or something like that speaking at an academic conference and being challenged by questions in the audience or someone else on the panel and responding by telling your mama insults or shouting profanities, which is what they normally do on these Twitter threads, that person would probably be asked to leave the conference for engaging in, in just blatantly unprofessional conduct, uh, especially abusive conduct towards their, uh, uh, their interlocutors and critics. But yet that's what we've seen is the, uh, the the norm from the defenders of the 1619 Project all the way up to Nicole Hannah-Jones herself. Uh, if you look at her Twitter feed, although she just recently deleted the entire thing to, uh, to hide some of the controversy in it, it is a nonstop barrage of personal insults, abuse, scorn, uh, like insulting memes, uh, uh, just derogatory behavior toward anyone and everyone that criticizes and attempts to substantively, substantively engage in the facts and uh, and issues that the sixteen nineteen project airs on. Yeah, j- just for just for clarity's sake, um, the people you know saying like yeah, the equivalent of like yo mama jokes. Uh, is your mother a economic historian as well? No, she is not. Oh, <laughs> she, you see, uh, almost. I, um, 
retired school teacher. That, that, that would that would make so much more sense. Um, on, on the on, on the issue of uh, Nicole Hannah Jones, I remember one one thing, the one tweet that that stood out for me. Uh, it, I guess she was responding to her critics, um, you know, sort of as a as a group, and it was a picture of of her displaying her grill on right. like on her teeth, and that just seemed very that just seemed very weird. <laughs> to yeah. me that that's somebody you know who you know is a Pulitzer Prize winner I don't know if she was at the time I don't know if, the, yeah, if that yeah. had been awarded yet would respond to critics in such a fashion say, not even if she's necessarily a Pulitzer Prize winner yet I mean this is a, a top journalist at the supposed paper of record in the United States and I remember that exact exchange uh the person that she flashed her grill at and posted all these derogatory comments about was an African-American critic of the 1619 project uh, so she's just in, engaged in, in very unprofessional, scornful, abusive behavior at critics from across the spectrum. Uh, another example that came up is when uh, James McPherson and Gordon Wood, Sean Wilentz, these are, are, are prominent historians at Ivy League institutions. Most of them, I'd say, are politically on the center left, started to point out some of the problems with the 1619 Project uh, on, on factual basis. Uh, tried to substantively and very professionally engage the, uh, the the editors at the Times to get them to issue necessary corrections or respond at least. And she tweeted out that uh, uh, these are just a bunch of, quote, white historians, as if that was uh, a sufficient answer to their, uh, their criticisms. Uh, but this has been across the board. Uh, my own engagement with her, uh, she... Uh, you know, here, here's the irony of it. She came under fire early on, uh, not only just for the American Revolution, but for some of her interpretation of the Abraham Lincoln presidency. And uh, one of the issues was over uh, Lincoln's plan to colonize freed slaves in, in the Caribbean and other locales, which is a, a historically true, accurate event. It, it, it did happen, and Lincoln certainly believed in it. Um, I, in fact, much of my scholarship is in that exact issue, that exact area, and I discovered uh, all sorts of evidence that, that teased out what happened in this program and why it, uh, why it ultimately failed during the Civil War. So uh, she came under criticism from some historians on the other side of that that, that uh, thought she overstated the evidence, and she started uh, citing my book uh, in, in her own defense, uh, citing my evidence and research in her own defense and sent out several tweets and public comments uh, with links back to my book on Amazon. Wow. Um, you know, a couple of days later, she realizes that I was the author of the same book she was citing and suddenly I was persona non grata. Um, so she, she abandoned that entirely and then started attacking my credentials, starting to say, well, you know, because he's an economic historian, his background is in a policy school. He studies economics, not just uh, straight up history. Uh, Magnus is therefore unqualified to, uh, to, to criticize my essay and criticize historical events. And this is even though I published probably over, I think I counted up over two dozen scholarly works in the Civil War era and the economics of the 19th century slavery, all the material that's exactly topical to the 1619 project. And anyone who's who's been following this, I mean, it, it does look like uh, Jones has had sort of like a, a little bit of a public meltdown mm -hmm. um, in that, you know, you describe her erasing a number of, uh, of tweets. But I think uh, one of the latest things was you – had pointed out that that the language on the New, on the New York Times website, the, the the digital version of the 1619 project, 
language had been scrubbed without yes. <laughs> without uh, anyone saying, "Hey, we're we're taking out this language." Well, what was that specific language? Well, this is uh, so, so. If you go all the way back to August of last year when it was published, uh, one of the opening paragraphs. This was on their their flashy website copy of it. Uh, so the, the the thing that uh, you know in the digital age, this is where most readers encounter. Uh, print media. They don't carry around the uh, the paper copy of the newspaper anymore. They read it on the website. And the lead paragraph, the intro to the website copy, uh, said that uh, the year 1619 uh, was the true founding, quote unquote, true founding of the United States of America, not 1776. So this was a big uh, political themed framing of the entire project. And it's a theme that uh, that Nicole Hannah-Jones took and ran with. So her Twitter feed had um, um, a banner on it that showed the year 1776 crossed out and replaced by 1619. But it's also something that the, the critics seized on very early on and said, you know, this is uh, this is almost a, a, an inflammatory way of framing American history that denigrates uh, some of the positive events that we celebrate, like 1776, and attempts to to, to force everything into this uh, this narrative that is nothing but uh, slavery-centric uh, to the denigration of anything and everything else. So it was something that got a lot of backlash. There were uh, several uh, newspaper columns rent, uh, written about this one specific line that the two, the true founding was 1619, not 1776. Um, well, that abrasiveness of the claim ended up being a, a, a cause for controversy when the paper was going into Pulitzer Prize season. Uh, it, it's something that, that that really didn't set easily with uh, the people that were considering this for you know major journalism awards, and they eventually give it to them. But what we find is that uh, sometime over the last year, Nicole Hannah-Jones and the other writers at the New York Times involved in this project just very quietly stopped using that language. They dropped the true founding of 1619 uh, versus 1776. They quit uh, trying to juxtapose the two side by side as if one uh, should be reframed and used to displace the other. Uh, it just drops out of their rhetoric right in advance of the, uh, the Pulitzer Prize season. Uh, it went mostly unnoticed at the time because uh, mm. it's just something that they, they quit talking about. But about a month ago, uh, so this is September 2020, when uh, the 1619 Project came under fire from uh, Donald Trump and some some Republicans in Congress started critiquing it, Nicole Hannah-Jones goes on CNN and gives an interview, and she was asked specifically about this date thing, this reframing of 1619 versus 1776, and her response is effectively, I never said that. I never made that claim. So, you know, those of us that have been following this for the last year are, are just kind of flabbergasted by this. Uh, there was a, a writer for the Atlantic, Connor Friedersdorf, posted a thread that documented like 10 different instances of her making the claim that she was now denying. Uh, so several people took notice of this. Uh, what came along for me is, uh, so I'm reading this this controversy that's unfolded over her now denying what was once the center point claim of the project. And I remember distinctly reading that in the text of the project on the web copy. Mm. So about a month ago, I went back to the website where this uh, this thing was hosted, and lo and behold, the line is gone. It's It's been disappeared. It was sent down the memory hole, edited out at some point over the previous several months. And I did a little more digging and some other sleuths in the uh, social media sphere started comparing like uh, 
archived copies of the web page and, and we pinpointed it down, it seems to have disappeared sometime around last uh, December or January, right in advance of the, uh, the Pulitzer Prize season. So I wrote an article basically calling attention to this because it's not it's no longer like an interpretive or factual dispute. This is a case of journalistic ethics and the paper of record, the New York Times, surreptitiously deleting lines that it previously published in, in its uh, its web form and in its print copy uh, that no longer are there in the project. And, you know, Internet sleuths start looking at other parts of it. And there were like two or three other instances found where they did similar things. They edited out uh, lines that had drawn controversy around the 1619 project and then started pretending as if they were never there at all. Uh, so that burst into the open. That's what caused Brett Stevens, a columnist for the Times. He covered this in a critique of Nicole Hannah-Jones. And it basically kind of ignited a, uh, a civil war inside the New York Times' newsroom, from all accounts, of, of the people that are trying to defend journalistic ethics and saying, you know, this is wrong. And then you have a younger generation of what could probably be called like the wokester journalists that don't care about uh, fidelity to evidence, don't care about fidelity to the, uh, the the printed word. They view this as like a political battle of uh, of upholding Nicole Hannah Jones and the 1619 Project at all costs. And, and and how you know it's like without those without those important words like the true founding, it's almost like. How can you even call the project the 1619 project as opposed to, yeah. you know, you know, something else? I'm trying to I'm trying to think the equivalent of like a like if a band has a concept album and, you know, you get rid of the main like the main yeah. song from the album, but yet the album still called. I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to right. uh, <laughs> I'm probably doing doing way too much uh, work to, to make sense of it. But, you know, I, I think. What's really troubling about this and, you know, them trying to, you know, scrub it and hoping that nobody would notice is, man, you, you really um, you take away a lot of the authority of the voices that contributed to it. And, and like you said, that you said that there was writings in the 1619 project that, you know, you agree with and that people should know about. And to just do this, I, I, it's just a it's just a huge, a huge disservice. Well, there's the great tragedy of it all. Uh, you know, the 1619 Project is a journalistic endeavor, I think was conceptually merited in the sense of, uh, you know, I get what they were trying to do. They're trying to draw attention to the neglected nuances and details of slavery, both historically and uh, and its legacy in the present day, which is, uh, you know, a perfectly worthwhile project in concept. And most of the essays for the 1619 Project are perfectly fine at that mission. What, what's happened, though, in the last year is the way that the New York Times has handled the fallout from the controversy. Uh, well, well, first off, they overreached in two or three of the main essays, and that's Matthew Desmond and Nicole Hannah-Jones, the ones that have really gotten the focus of attention. They, they basically used this historical analysis to argue a 2020 political message that sounds a lot more like uh, the Green New Deal and socialized medicine and tax hikes than it does a, a historical analysis of slavery. Yeah. So, and, and, uh, and, there's also, and there's also sort of the, the poetry of it as well. Yeah. I, I think one of the lines is about, you know— um, the the very the very DNA of the country um, is you know has been described as, this. Yeah. As, as, yeah. as having this and which uh, I, I think from an artistic perspective like that sounds beautiful but then it's yeah. like well, yeah. well wait a minute what does that mean what 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 does that what does it's, that actually 
tell us about our our shared history and where we are yeah, today. Yeah, so, so is it DNA rooted in this origin point in 1619 is the preeminent way that this is branded, whether it's literal or metaphorical, that was there, that was the brand. And now it became controversial. They're, they're, they're just sending it away, sending it down the memory hole and pretending it never existed. You know, that's a problem. And the real tragedy of this is, uh, aside from what it's revealed about the New York Times is lack of journalistic standards, it's also cast a shadow over the seven or eight other essays that were not political, that were not uh, part of uh, of this try to to rebrand and manipulate the project after it's published. Uh, so unfortunately, I think uh, through the Times' own handling of the controversy, they've discredited other essays unfairly. They've discredited the the, the bulk of their whole product by uh, by latching it on to just this almost incorrigible defense of uh, of material that probably should never have been printed in just one or two of the essays, and that certainly warranted a correction or retraction or uh, deeper scrutiny than the Times was willing to give it. Do, do, you think, um, do you think there's a chance that the Pulitzer will be uh, taken away, um, or do you think it's sort of not in 2020, yeah. <laughs> not, not this well, year? <laughs> right. I think in a just world, in a uh, a world that was concerned with evidence and facts and journalistic ethics, uh, the changing of the text combined with the Times' refusal to uh, to properly engage substantive criticism of, of that essay would merit on its surface the, uh, uh, the retraction of the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, this is akin to a journalistic or an academic scandal at this point. Unfortunately, we live in a very politicized world, so I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I, I've been surprised before, uh, uh, but I am not holding out uh, uh, high optimism that the committee will do the right thing. Uh, how did you, you know, how did you get get into uh, all of this? Like, how did you decide that, you know, you, you wanted uh, your vocation to be, you know, economic uh, historian? What 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 drew you? To this top, this subject, and in particular, the um, time periods that that you cover. Yeah, so I've, I've uh, some of my earliest academic work was specifically on the politics and the economics of slavery. Um, I've always found it an interesting subject, uh, precisely because it is so tragic, precisely because it uh, it was such a horrendous political fight to get rid of this institution. Uh, so you know, I, I I grew up reading. Texts about the Civil War, texts about the abolitionists, uh, some of the arguments that they were making, uh, and then connecting them to some of the economic themes because I see the same stuff in Adam Smith. I see the same stuff in uh, in people like Richard Cobden that are writing uh, on the economic dimensions. They're also anti-slavery figures. So uh, bringing all that together just kind of excited me about the subject uh, in, in ways that want, made me want to investigate it as a historian and as someone who works on the economic side of that history and come up with a theory, come up with a, uh, an, a better understanding of why slavery played out the way it did, why it was so difficult to get rid of politically, and what are some of the uh, the harmful legacies that it's had. So when the 1619 Project launches, and it's ostensibly about investigating this history of slavery, I'm sitting here reading it as someone who's been working in this for uh, you know, 15, 20 years, uh, has dozens of published works on it. It was right in my subject area. Uh, so yeah, of course, I'm going to jump in and comment on it. But then, then when you start reading it, and you start seeing just how uh, not misguided, but also just atrociously wrong, some of the uh, the claims that it's being put forth as facts in it are. Uh, it becomes a necessary task, an almost incumbent task. 
for scholars that work in this area to try to set the record straight, to try to give it responsible criticism that for various reasons the Times has avoided. Yeah. And and what do you think um, from your own uh, scholarship, what are you know some of the uh, the most interesting things that you've come about that that you've discovered about um, about slavery uh, in the United States, like you know stuff that that we might not be learning in uh, elementary school or so the um, uh, the one thing that we all hear about is that, that there is a uh, a pushback against slavery on the eve of the Civil War. And, you know, it's associated with the ascendancy of, of Abraham Lincoln, uh, his election to the presidency. Uh, we all know that basic story, the Emancipation Proclamation, and then some of the uh, uh, the political processes that they go through to eventually abolish the institution. Uh, one thing that I focused on in my own work that I think is often left out of that story is just how intermeshed uh, the slave system is with what I'd call like political capture of the government, interest group capture of the government. So, you know, we think of interest groups today, what do they do? They bribe politicians to get favorable bills or get subsidies for the the corn industry or the steel industry or whatever happens to be politically connected in Washington. Well, if you start thinking of slave owners the, the, the very same way, start thinking of them as an interest group that lobbies Congress for favors from the federal government, uh, lobbies their state governments for favors that prop up slavery, it it uh, adds a whole new dimension of the political story of this institution. This is something that Adam Smith pointed out in 1776. He says basically that uh, wherever slavery exists in the world, uh, I've noticed this tendency of the slave owners themselves to run for political office. They get themselves elected to the legislatures or the colonial assemblies, and once they're there, they will never do anything that votes against the interest of this institution, quite the opposite. Uh, we see this in the in the decades before the Civil War. Uh, Southern political interests that are wrapped up in the slave system are voting through measures such as the Federal Fugitive Slave Act, which, uh, with, which both funds the enforcement of the return of escaped slaves to the South uh, and then attempts to oblige the northern states to participate in this, uh, basically, the, the scheme of the slave catchers. Uh, there are other federal, state, and local expenditures on, uh, on funding slave patrols, funding a policing mechanism that's all designed to keep the system propped up and in place. And really what you see on the eve of the Civil War one of the great grievances against Lincoln is not that he's going to abolish slavery. He had actually uh, stayed clear of making that commitment. and He's kind of a moderate on the issue of abolition outright. But they do see Lincoln as a threat to this continued subsidy, a threat to the federal government continuing to bestow favors on the slave-owning uh, political interest class. Uh, so you bring that into the story, it starts becoming less a case of, of strictly a moral tale. It's also a, a political and economic tale uh, that's playing out just as corrupt interest group politics would occur today. Uh, of course, there are a lot of people that don't really want to focus or, or, or study that kind of a thing because uh, when you start recognizing it, it looks like a case of government failure. It looks like a case of uh, of markets that have been badly distorted in slavery's fa uh, favor by um, uh, public subsidies, public expenses, things that the federal government is doing to prop up the system. And, you know, that really runs against the, uh, uh, the, the, the whole notion that slavery and laissez-faire capitalism are connected. Uh, quite the opposite. It's a, it's a classic case of a, uh, uh, a sector or industry's capture of government and using it to do crony regulations and, and benefits and subsidies and expenditures that it otherwise would not have. And, and um, 
I remember reading about how um, a very small population uh, in the in the United States and in, in the South in particular actually owned slaves. Like, what, mm-hmm. what percentage of of Southerners were were actually slave owners? Yeah, so um, I don't have the exact statistics before me. It is absolutely a minority, although there's some complications there because you know how do you count the census? Uh, do you count slave ownership by households? Uh, do you count slave ownerships by in- individuals? Uh, another way of putting that, there are our sons and daughters and cousins and, and uh, family members of people that own slaves that are clearly benefiting from slavery, even if they don't own slaves themselves. But it is a minority faction, and it's especially concentrated around the wealthy elite, large plantation owners. And a lot of those tend to be on the eastern coast. Uh, those are the the old money, the the, the east coast elites. Exactly, it's the coastal <laughs> elites. It's the coastal uh, elites always. Uh, it's the rich people with uh, tens of thousands of acres and and several hundred slaves working on the property. Uh, that tends to dominate the political class. And there's actually some resistance prior to the Civil War among Southern poor farmers, the small uh, uh, single plot of land. uh, I I was uh, just about to ask you. Yeah, I was just about to ask you that. It's sort of like, how do you, you know, how do these uh, elite slave owners sell to the public the institution of slavery and maintaining it where, um, you know, obviously, like, you know, if you're a poor, um, poor farmer, you're in competition with these, you know, uh, uh, right. big business, if you will, but slave yeah. business. Yeah. So you're uh, there's a lot of propaganda at the time, the pro-slavery propaganda that's tried to push on uh, on the small farmers, on the southern poor people and, re- and really in the whole country is the idea that if we don't have slavery, we're going to lose our social order and the slaves will revolt and there will be mass death. And, uh, you know, it, it's really appealing to fear uh, in a really ugly, racist way. That, uh, that that really dominates the, the political discussion coming out of the elite. And what we do see is, is both just prior to the Civil War, there is some unrest, there is some dissent among uh, poor white Southerners that view this institution as, as something that's holding back the region, as something that's causing all sorts of, uh, of social and political harms, in addition to being horrendously immoral. And what happens on the eve of the Civil War is you start to see some of these divisions emerge. So when the South, the Deep South secedes, uh, it's the, the the heavy slave owner states along the Gulf Coast and then the uh, the southern eastern coast of the United States that uh, are, are the initial seceders. But the further inland you go, the further west you go, there's actually uh, more and more dissent among poor white farmers against joining the Confederacy. So there are pockets of rebellion within the Confederacy itself. Uh, especially in the Appalachian regions of Tennessee. Uh, the state of West Virginia was originally part of the state of Virginia, but it breaks away during the Civil War, uh, basically because it's the poorer region of the state. It was uh, uh, mostly small uh, farmers that did not own slaves themselves, or if they did, it was a much smaller part of their economy. And in the middle of the Civil War, West Virginia is formed as a new state, as a breakaway from the uh, uh, the, the rich elites of the Confederacy in the eastern part of the state. Uh, so there's definitely this type of pocket of resistance. This is also the reason why uh, Missouri and Kentucky never really joined the Confederacy. What they have is internal conflicts between the pro-slavery and anti-slavery sides. Uh, but th- th- this is a, a huge dimension of the Civil War's um, strategic lines that, that often gets shoved aside in the uh, the, the simplistic, uh, you know, thirty thousand foot picture that we get of it in in uh, even 
uh, like K through twelve textbooks or yeah. or popular discussions. Uh, recently, uh, over the past you know couple of years, um, there was some controversy over HBO. Mm-hmm. Um, they were going to make a series called uh, I think it was either Confederate or Confederacy or something like that. Um, yeah. And and it being sort of an uh, an alternate universe where um, the uh, the uh, Confederacy won the Civil War and you know the uh, uh, you know, slavery has continued all the way up through uh, through modern times, and right, right. I guess it was. Uh, uh, th- there was some uh, what I thought was some silly controversy: the idea that that somehow that a show made by HBO would promote, um, you know, slavery. I, I think was just was just sort of ridiculous. But I, right, I was really right. looking forward to the show because um, it is such a, a complicated subject and it has such a rich history and it's still we're still trying to get a handle on on what happened and why it happened and all that where i thought it was just a it would be a a perfect challenge for uh for writers and performers to you know to tell to tell an interesting new story but i I don't think we'll i don't think we're ever going to get to it right right it's become so politicized the discussion of slavery that what's uh, what's lost in the process is nuance was lost is uh, the necessary investigation that we need to look into uh, to find out that this is not just like a uh, um, a two-sided issue. It's a, it's a uh, an issue that has it transcends the political spectrum. It has parties on both uh, radical abolitionist, radical pro-slavery side, and then almost everything in between. And that needs to be part of the discussion. That needs to be part of our understanding of it. Because uh, what happens is, you know, if you take the approach of uh, uh, whether you, you you wanted to use like one of these neo-Confederate stories on the other end, the other end fringe, or you use a story like the 1619 Project is telling – both of them are proclaiming that only one of those sides is true. Uh, so the 1619 Project, in a weird way, almost adopts the constitutional theory and the economic theories that were being propagated by the Confederates uh, on the eve of the Civil War or in the late 1850s. So uh, uh, 1619 Project's understanding of the U.S. Constitution is almost identical to the Dred Scott decision in the sense that it accepts the Constitution as a pro-slavery document. But the problem here is you go back to ask anyone in 1857, the Dred Scott decision is one of the most controversial Supreme Court decisions in uh, the history of the country. It, uh, I mean, even more so than something like Roe versus Wade today, uh, it would be akin to uh, you know making an argument that just because the pro-slavery side won the Supreme Court case, uh, that established constitutional perpetuity behind the institution of slavery. Yet any abolitionist in 1857 would be uh, you know up in arms raising the pitchforks at that very notion, they declared the Supreme Court erred. It, it used the wrong interpretation. Act, and, activist judges. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and, this and, was and, Roger and, B. Tawney is an activist judge in 1857. And, and um, uh, Dred Scott, what, was that the one where um, uh, escaped slaves would be returned to the yes, South? Yes, yes. So okay. uh, Dred Scott, he's, a, um, an esca- he's, he's actually brought out of the slave-owning parts of the country uh, by his owner. And, uh, and essentially sues for freedom because he, he's, you know, he's in, you're in the free part of the country and slavery's uh, laws do not extend there. The idea is, you know, you can have a, 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 you, you can order release from your captivity. So this is an old abolitionist legal strategy that goes all the way back to uh, the 1770s in England and had been used with a, a great amount of success in most of the northern states uh, for decades. 
But the Supreme Court basically says, well, Dred Scott, uh, he's black. Uh, because of this, he doesn't have standing to sue. He's not a citizen. He's not contemplated in the American constitutional order. Uh, so it really shoves through this uh, oh. this uh, this radical pro-slavery interpretation of the Constitution. And anyone on the anti-slavery side is rightly saying in 1857, you know, this is an abomination. This is bad law. And that's true of Abraham Lincoln. It's true of Frederick Douglass. It's it's true of every, everyone from the most moderate northerner who's maybe slightly anti-slavery all the way up to the radical abolitionists are incensed at this decision. And their whole idea is that we need to push back at this. We need to uh, uh, to write our constitutional interpretation from this erroneous decision. And that's completely missing from something like the 1619 Project's uh, legal history. Wow. Um, um, I just want to um, turn things uh, over to, to another subject yeah. uh, not related um, to the 1619 Project or uh, slavery, um, but it is related in that it's a subject that I think – um, at least the way that I've seen it discussed, is lacking nuance. And it's also a subject that has gotten you into more trouble. Yeah. Um, and that's the uh, the great uh, Barrington Declaration. Right, um, right. Could you, uh, did you say you're you're living in Great, in great Barrington? Barrington? Yes, yes. Okay. Okay. So were you the author of this? Of, I, I of this was one? not the author. I, I, uh, I attended the, the ceremony where they signed it and watched the conference uh, more so as an observer. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, an economist in background, economic historian in background, although I've worked on statistical measures, so I've turned a lot of my attention to COVID as everyone else has since um, all of these events started to unfold. But um, the genesis of the document is we had three top medical scholars, epidemiologists, public health uh, scholars that work in this area. I mean, these are guys with uh, with tens of thousands of citations in their work, teaching at Stanford, Oxford, and Harvard University. Uh, they came together just for a small conference to uh, to have a discussion to alternative views of the, uh, the, the lockdowns, alternative strategies to combat the coronavirus besides locking all of society down and really call attention to some of the, uh, the social and economic harms that had come, place, uh, come in place after the lockdowns that had been neglected from the public discussion. Well, over the course of the weekend, they, they adopted, uh, they drafted a, um, a short uh, 500 word statement of principles. It's not meant to be like a, uh, a plan to, uh, to adopt. It's meant to be a, a framework for changing the discussion, for having another discussion of, of what we can do besides lockdowns to address COVID. And uh, they end up signing the document. Uh, we uh, we released it uh, the following day when they uh, they went down to the uh, to Washington D.C. and met with several officials in the Health and Human Services Department, people on the Coronavirus Task Force, just to to, to plead this alternative case of something that's been shoved aside, and you know it, it blew up into kind of uh, going viral. I think the public had sitting had been waiting for this type of a case to be made, and several medical professionals have been uh, almost aghast at the fact that um, the scientific discussion had uh, uh, had sidetracked almost entirely in favor of lockdowns and was not giving a proper airing to viewpoints that challenged that. So it goes viral over the course of the next week. And next thing you know, this petition we started, we were expecting maybe to have a couple hundred signatures, maybe a couple thousand from the general public. It blew up. And I think of the latest count, we are uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 600,000 signers of those, uh, maybe about 25,000 are, are either uh, public health, epidemiology uh, professionals or medical doctors. And, and you guys had, uh, you had an issue with um, 
I guess, critics signing the declaration and using, uh, uh, I don't know, they're using uh, pseudonyms or, or that <laughs> sort of thing. What is, what, what's going on with that? Well, uh, because yeah. I'm, but just, um, I just want everyone to know, I, I, I read over the, uh, the great uh, Barrington declaration and uh, I went ahead and I, and I signed it. Um, yeah. So no, appreciate um, it. You know, I guess I'm a little, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a little biased, but yeah, when I, when I heard about people pretending yeah. to be, people they're not uh that was a little weird yeah that this is uh this testifies to uh, the immaturity of the other side of the debate uh you know we were expecting scientific engagement these are top scholars that are, are well published in their field you'd think that scientists and journalists on the other side would want to engage them on the merits of the argument and you know i'm okay if people want to disagree with that argument but but take it at its face value and engage the evidence let's have the scientific discussion that's not what happened uh, rather, we discovered, uh, you know, a couple of days after the the petition went live, and it's it's, it's gotten wild success. It's all over the media. Uh, we have tens of thousands of signatures coming in. There was a, um, uh, and I hesitate to even use the term journalist, but there's this character over in uh, Great Britain that's uh, written for things like The Guardian by the name of uh, Nafiz Ahmed. And uh, what he did is he launched a Twitter campaign. Uh, a couple of days after the petition line, uh, uh, basically encouraging critics to submit fake signatures. And they're everything from uh, so the one that got quoted as someone submitted Dr. Johnny Bananas. I think uh, there were a couple of fake Anthony Fauci's that signed it there. Uh, uh, but, but also just a flood of profanities, vulgarities, just Twitter troll stuff. And it's not coming from, uh, you know, the random Internet weirdo. These are people with blue check marks that are supposed to be epidemiologists or science journalists. Well, I do a little digging. At first, it turns out that this uh, Nafiz Ahmed guy is uh, a fairly notorious character. He was actually a 9-11 truther, conspiracy theorist uh, uh 15 years ago, one of those guys that was writing about uh, how jet fuel doesn't heat up enough to melt the steel beams of the well, well, tower. Well, it's funny. It's funny you bring that up because I was immediately thinking about how um, the one one argument I always hear from 9-11 truthers is that, you know, there's been uh, uh, signatures from, you know, tens of thousands of scientists <laughs> right. um, saying that, you know, exactly like, uh, uh, yeah, jet fuel doesn't melt steel. Um, the, the, the caveat to that is well, it, it doesn't melt steel, but it all, but it weakens it considerably, right. Right. Exactly. Uh, which makes it very hard for a building to, 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 uh, stand during, to stay up. Yeah, wow. exactly. Exactly. So, so, so it's almost an exercise in projection. These guys are are Twitter trolls that are using troll tactics to try and discredit legitimate scientific discussion. Well, what we did is uh, we actually audited all the numbers and we discovered there was a clear pronounced pattern. So I think we found a, in total of about a thousand fake signatures up until that point. And this is a thousand out of uh, uh, you know tens of thousands signings. So it's a tiny little percentage. But almost half of those came within 24 hours of this guy launching this Mr. Blue Checkmark launching his campaign to flood the, uh, the petition with hoax signatures. So it was like this weird media created story. And then what does he do? He turns around and he writes an article about the hoax that he perpetrated as if this is a, a reporter coming in and discovering a, uh, a problem with the petition. Uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's the very definition of what could be called like a manufactured or fake news story. The reporter himself created the controversy, reported on it as if it was an external controversy. And did so in a way that also completely ignored that we started immediately taking measures to flag and delete all of these these hoax petition signatures. 
uh, within like uh, hours of him even announcing this. So I think his fake signature that he put up there that he was boasting everywhere about was maybe on the petition for a grand total of uh, of an hour and a half or an hour and 45 minutes before we caught it, flagged it, deleted it blocked his IP address, do all the necessary measures to stop that. And, uh, it, you know, it's been a, a, a continuous effort since then to keep the hoaxes off of the petition, but it's something that we are, are succeeding at, that we're very conscientiously trying to stop. Yeah, I'm happy to, I'm happy to hear that. And I think it's, it's yet just another example of the amount of time, the amount of manpower put into dealing with, you know, this, this bullshit Yes. is taken away from actually having a conversation about, okay, what can we do to open up and to do it safely? And what are the, what are the, what are the things that, that people should know about, um, you know, going into this? I'm, I, I'm in New York. Um, the listeners who, uh, listeners to the podcast will know that I, uh, my wife and I, we had a baby during the, the height of, of COVID, um, March 26th. Uh, it was a really scary time. So, so scary. And I was just looking for, I just wanted to know what do I have to do to stay alive? What do I have to do to keep, you know, to keep my family alive? And it, it was, it was so, um, it was just so good to talk with experts who, you know, were, you know, were honest, were truthful, we're going by, uh, you know, using using their expertise to um, to say, look, um, wash your hands. It's really important that you wash your hands. This is the first time in my life that I think I've ever actually properly washed my hands before. Yeah, the sanitizers and yeah. The first, you know, thirty eight years of my of my life, I was <laughs> I was you know really half assing my uh, my hand washing. Um, but also, you know, how to know what the risks are and know what what is the the the, the most risky behavior. And I think, what well, like for example, one of the things that you talk about. Um, or, or that that is talked about in in the in the declaration is hey if you're going to meet uh, older family members it's better to do it outside yeah. rather than inside and it's like here's a here's a small thing that you can do that can greatly um, you know uh, impact uh, those who you care about and, and that are, are who are around you um, and you know as we've learned more and more about uh, about this disease and I think especially looking at um, the uh, you know the way that Donald Trump had it and sure, then sure. and then beat it and then Chris Christie as well had it and beat it. I want to know like okay, well, what did they take and how can we make it so that so that so that that is available to anybody who needs it? How can we you know how can we That's get exactly. there rather than uh, let me you know uh, let me see how many times I could uh, have Mickey Mouse sign the Great Barrington Declaration? Right, right, yeah. So it's it's a complete uh, collapse of public discourse coming from the other side. And it's a hundred percent one-sided in the way that, that they're engaged in a social media troll battle. And you know, this is everything from top ep, supposedly top epidemiologists at Harvard and Yale that are tweeting profanities at us, that are uh, are uh, tweeting and boasting about how the fact that they submitted hoax signatures, and we're trying to have a scientific discussion. Uh, and, you know, a point that, that I keep bringing up and making is uh, part of the problem with the lockdown strategy that we adopted back in the spring is it was geared toward the general population. It was geared to 100% of the public needed to lock down and shelter in place to stop this thing. But one of the, uh, the unseen effects of that is we actually neglected for several months 
the uh, uh, the concentrated outbreaks that were happening in places like uh, nursing homes and long term care facilities. Right. Uh, so it turns out to be uh, just just to be a horrendous disease that runs rampant and almost unchecked through our nursing homes. Meanwhile, we have these ineffectual lockdowns in place. So part of the declaration, you know, we call it focused protection, and that is to have a strategy that intervenes on behalf of the most vulnerable, the nursing mm-hmm. homes, the long-term care facilities. So uh, maybe we uh, we adopt a measure that uh, that subsidizes nursing home workers to live on site so they don't have to interact with the general public as much and risk entering into the facility with the virus when it just runs rampant. Uh, That's something that needed to be discussed back in March. And we had evidence to discuss it back in March, but it was shoved aside and squeezed out of the conversation because everyone was so focused on lockdowns. Now now we have the epidemiologists that are supposedly engaged in science are refusing to actually have a scientific conversation because they'd rather Twitter troll. And and one of the things that I'm I'm, I'm so thankful about is um i think the weekend right before my birthday my father took ill and was in a hospital and thankfully he was able uh, to be treated and he had a neurologist who said i'd much rather you not be here in this hospital with this new disease this this um, novel coronavirus going around i'd much rather you be be at home my mind i catastrophize a lot so uh, (laughs) i would you know think the worst but it was like it was like wow that was that was I was so for my family, I think, but we were so fortunate to have someone who's like, okay, we're going to assess the risks here. And it's much better for you um, to be at home than it is to be in the hospital for another week, you know, uh, you know, getting a treatment for, um, right. for the diagnosis that, that he had. Phil, I want to thank you uh, so much for, you know, taking the time uh, to do this. I, I always just see it as, as such a, a great thing when I can uh, talk with, with somebody who's going to, you know, show me stuff about my country, my history <laughs> that I have, that I have no idea while at the same time dealing with the same BS that I deal with, like online, you're on Facebook, you're on Twitter, yeah. you're dealing with that, but while at the same time, um, you know, educating people. Uh, so I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so oh, much. I appreciate it. Thanks again for having me on. 